3: Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. Entertainment, music, pop culture, LGBT plus news. Let's go there. Start now. Hello everybody. What's up? Happy Monday. This is Let's Go There with Shira and Ryan where we catch you up on the news of the day, our lives, Mm. so much more, and of course some great music in between right here on Channel Q.
4: You know what's really relatable? Tell me. Like being so excited that the world's opening back up and getting out of the house finally no more quarantine really and mm-hmm. still being safe of course but i forgot how expensive everything was uh-huh you probably
3: saved a lot of money
4: i am right? so poor just uh-huh. from going out like what i'm like oh i went to a nice friendly dinner and we <laughs> split it three ways and i just had like 80 bucks and i'm like it's nice but why is everything so expensive
3: and things are getting more expensive by the way because they lost a lot of money during this time and then things are just getting expensive also because to import things now from other countries oh my god who knew you were going to go down this road
4: (laughs) I was just having a relatable conversation about how damn I mean from gas to like a a simple drink at the restaurant importing
3: the gas from the other country oh my goodness (laughs) <laughs> it's always like a socio-political conversation. Yeah, I was like, how did we end.
4: get there? How did we but get there? But I, I
3: hear you on your pain. It's I agree. It's so intense. Um, you know, I didn't do my nails for six months, and who knew how much I was saving?
4: Or my hair. I mean, I, well, were you doing it before? Yeah, I would get my mani-pedi. Well, I didn't remember. I, that was actually Vanessa made a sound in here like I was a burn, but I was really wondering. I know you used to get your hair done, and mani-pedi, like, a like thing. all of that adds up. I never remember. Also, hair Virginia color,
3: penny. like a lot of for months, a lot of people didn't get their hair colored, and that saves a ton of money or trimmed.
4: Yeah, that's true. I, I get it, but I miss it. I'm just still like I don't know. Is anyone else feeling that? Like now that things are reopened, you're just like, oh my god, maybe staying in the house and lockdown <laughs> was a good idea. Doing nothing was a good
3: idea. <laughs>
4: maybe it was.
3: <laughs> I thought I had no money, but now I really have no I money. I
4: really don't.
3: <laughs> okay, uh, coming up on the show. At what age are people the happiest?
4: oh, we're doing that story. I saw that story. And I was like, I was going to tell you that we should do it. That's a good one. i Yeah, excited. that's
3: coming up uh, on the show. Plus, more protests in Minneapolis or Minnesota as another black man is killed by police. We're going to be sharing everything that's happening and bringing you the latest news. Uh, but right now it's getting to some what's training this hour because uh, Brooklyn Center Police Department Chief Tim Gannon called the shooting of 20-year-old Dante Wright by an officer an accidental just discharge. And here he is during a press conference today.
1: As I watch the video and listen to the officer's commands, it is my belief that the officer had the intention to deploy their taser, but instead shot Mr. Wright with a single bullet. This appears to me from what i viewed in the officer's reaction in distress immediately after that this was an accidental discharge that resulted in the tragic death of Mr. Wright.
4: Yeah, I watched this entire uh, press conference, right? Mm-hmm. And that guy's an asshole. He spent his entire time. Yes, I'm saying it. Who knows if we can say it? But dump it if you want. Um, I there was no empathy. Mm-hmm. There was no emotion. There were protesters asking him questions. He walked away the first go around of questions and then was asked to come back. And he had no remorse. And he tried to get emotional. He tried to do the whole lip quivering thing. Um, And someone was like, I know you are not about to cry. He was like, well, yeah, I am emotional. But the way that he's reacted, the way that he treated the protesters that night uh, with everything going on has proven that it's just not any type of remorse or anything happening there. And then they're also flying the Blue Lives Matter flag right underneath the American flag as well at the police station. And so you you talk about and you see all these things that are going on and how a parking, uh, not a parking ticket, traffic but a traffic violation. violation ended up having a 20-year-old black man lose his life. Yeah, so I, I don't really know what to say, but I do know Biden sp- said something that I wish he would have honestly just kept.
5: I haven't called uh, Dante Wright's family, but uh, our prayers with their family is really a really tragic thing that happened. We're, and uh, But I think uh, we got to wait and see what the investigation shows uh, and the entire investigation. You all watched, I assume as I did, the film, which is fairly the body cam, which is fairly, uh, fairly graphic. Um, the question is, Was it an accident? Was it intentional? That remains to be determined uh, uh, by a full-blown investigation.
3: And is this what we wanted to hear from President Biden in this case? Of
4: course not. I mean, I don't know if it's just me, but aren't tasers and guns two different shapes? And also, one is on,
3: according to the police, you keep one on uh, opposite of your dominant hand, supposedly. A police officer with right
4: training would know how this is going on. The fact that this is happening in a city that uh, another murder trial is going on. Are you kidding me? Did nothing happen? Were there no necessary training? I don't know. what We are most definitely covering everything you need to know about the Derek Chauvin trial and, of course, um, this new unfortunate situation that has happened.
3: Yeah, and more on that in 15 minutes right on the show. Uh, But coming up, the numbers are in. A quarter of the country won't get the coronavirus vaccine because of Trump's medical advice. More on that next with The Washington Post. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. According to Economist, YouGov polling released last week about a quarter of adult Americans say they aren't planning on getting vaccinated against the virus. That's equivalent to about 64 million Americans. And joining us right now is national political correspondent at The Washington Post, Philip Bump, who reported about this. Thanks for being here. Of course. So what was most revealing slash surprising about this poll to you? Well,
1: I wouldn't say there's anything particularly surprising simply because we've seen this pattern evolve over the course of the past couple of months, right? Uh, not only that there is a substantial percentage of Americans who say that they're not particularly interested in getting the vaccine, uh, but that that group of people overlaps pretty heavily with Republicans and, and supporters of Donald Trump. The, the, the one data point that did jump out at me is, is pretty remarkable was among those people who both are Republican and said they didn't plan on getting the vaccine, uh, all of the respondents were asked who they trusted on, on medical advice and fully 70% of those Republicans who don't plan on getting the vaccine says that they trusted Donald Trump's uh, medical advice either a lot or somewhat. And that's just a, you know, I mean, you know, a Dr. Fauci, by mm-hmm. comparison, was at, at 9%. So it's just sort of staggering.
4: I know there's always been this conversation about, like, a split difference between a Republican and kind of like a Trumper. Did we see that difference when it came to this data? Are kind of Republicans all in group together saying, oh, well, we trust Trump more than anything else?
1: Yeah, no, I mean, there there was no significant difference there. I mean, frankly, I think that, you know, if there have in the past been sort of differentiation between Republicans and and Trump voters— I think that's a very, very small difference in general. But here there's there's nothing substantial that that emerges.
3: And I also found it interesting that they were trusting Trump and yet Trump boasts about the vaccine. So how is it that political conservatives trust him but then don't trust the vaccine?
1: Well, one of the things that Donald Trump's really good at is sending different messages to different people, right? I mean, he would, all over the course of his presidency and when he was running for office both times, he would do and say things that he would later pretend he was doing or saying something totally different. He would send one message to his base and a different message, uh, he hoped, to the to the world at large. And so over the course of the past year, as the pandemic unfolded, the message he kept sending to people was, you can't trust the experts, we should just reopen everything, the virus isn't a big deal, yada, yada, yada. And he said that over and over and over, for months and months and months, because he didn't want the pandemic to hurt the economy and therefore hurt his reelection chances. So after the fact, when he realized, I think, that his only salvation, you know, in, in, you know when being regarded by history is that the, the vaccines were developed uh, while he was president, you know, obviously, I don't think he had a strong hand in that, but that the vaccines were developed while he was president. He wants to be able to claim the vaccines as his own, but of course, the horse is out of the barn in terms of Instilling that skepticism with his supporters.
4: So, what does this do to the idea of herd immunity?
1: Well, that's the question, right? So, when we talk about herd immunity, we're talking about reaching a point where the virus can't easily spread from person to person, simply because so many people are already immune to it. The best way to reach your herd immunity, obviously, is through vaccination, because you're not going to get sick and potentially die from the virus. I mean, you can also get it uh, to some extent by catching the the virus itself. So what this means then is it's not really clear where herd immunity will kick in. There's some thinking that it's 75 percent, 80 percent of the population. Uh, You know, when we're talking about a quarter of adults, not even including children, obviously, if a quarter of adults don't get the vaccine, then that means we're not going to get herd immunity. And that means that everyone is at risk, including kids who right now can't get vaccinated because the virus will still be able to spread more easily with fewer people who are immune to it.
3: Okay, well, Philip, thank you so much for joining us today for this. Of course. Thanks. That was Philip Bump, national political correspondent for The Washington Post. Coming up, more on what happened at the Derek Chauvin trial today and more on the police shooting in Brooklyn, Minnesota, that happened over the weekend that have led to more protests. That's next.
2: Let's go there. With Akira. Shira
3: and Ryan. Channel Q. Minnesota is in a state of crisis during the high-profile trial uh, that Derek Chauvin is having for the death of George Floyd. Another black man, Dante Wright, has been shot over the weekend in Brooklyn. And joining us right now is Dr. Lewis R. Gordon, a professor and head of philosophy at UConn STARS, who wrote a very very powerful piece in the conversation involving questions that we need to be asking ourselves as we seek racial justice in a court of law. Thanks for joining us today.
0: Thank you for inviting me.
3: Um, Now, can we just first start with why you think the judge denied a request for jury sequestration? I thought it, it's crazy and um, and disturbing and sad that this is all happening during this trial right now. What happened over um, the weekend in Minnesota?
0: Yeah, no, I mean that's just it's not only straightforwardly tragic, but we're also seeing a situation in this Minnesota, in the in the Dante Wright case in which. I mean, this is an individual who was pulled over for an air freshener. I mean, this is just so bizarre. And as the testimony of his girlfriend made very clear, uh, she pointed out that he was shot outside the car. He must have jumped in to get away from being killed. So we're talking about preemptive homicide right here, right? This is where the police officers are being judge and jury. And part of the, one of the issues I brought up in the piece I wrote is that we have to remember that police officers are supposed to be subject to the law. They're not the law. When they make themselves the law, they actually make themselves above it. Mm. And this is one of the reasons why, especially in relationship to black people in this country, we are dealing with a situation of extrajudicial killings.
4: Yeah, and I think one thing that you did really well in your piece uh, was break down Is there ever excusable police violence? And I feel like that's a a topic or a question that pops up when we're having these conversations. And I wanted you to kind of speak on that clear line that you made when you're talking about, you know, that question.
0: Sure. Well, the short answer is, of course, no. And one of the reasons for this is because I make a distinction between force and violence. And many people tend to ignore this. There's a tendency to use the word force when we're referring to the police, but force already has embedded in it a notion of excusable or understandable action. So, for instance, a simple example is if you get up, if you get up in the morning and you run to go to the the bathroom and you hit your toe, that is force. That is a painful, that is suffering, but it's not violence. Violence happens when somebody say put their foot in front of you and you trip, and you're harmed. So violence as an agent, an individual who has committed an, a wrongful action that leads to suffering. And this is crucial because, you see, when we use the term force with the police, the idea behind it is that they are to enforce the law. But by definition, it means they're not doing anything wrong. The problem with that analytically is that it puts the outcome before the assessment. The whole point of a trial is to determine whether the police officer is doing something wrong. And that would transform the meaning of force into violence. Now that's where the issue becomes very, very straightforward. Because once one admits that a police officer is doing something wrong, in other words, an act of violence, that means it's not justified. But there's a distinction between justification and excuse. And here's where it's tricky, because To be excusable, one has to be able to say that in that situation, one would do the same thing. But what we're discovering is that when we look at that situation, there are so many options other other than shooting somebody who is protesting or dragging somebody out of a car handcuffed and putting one's knee on on that person's back. In other words... These are actions, this is a case of actions that are neither justified nor excusable.
3: You're bringing up so many incredible and important points here. At what point will will the judge and jury s- see your arguments? Because it's something that obviously the public knows and those who are impacted by um, these things know. But then at what point will it convert to action when we see these trials?
0: This is where one of the issues that we, we, we must deal with, especially when we deal with murder or, or manslaughter, there's this concept called a mens rea, which is an evil mind. And what it means is that somebody's intentionally doing something wrong. The problem is that racism creates a double standard on this. If, we, if you want to look at it this way, the racism creates a, 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 an exception and a rule. So although there is a there's a lot of evidence that there are white men who, who go nuts and go and just slaughter people all over the place, the racism structures those men as exceptions. Mm-hmm. Now what racism does is in a situation where actual actual data reveal that a lot of what black men or black women are accused of tend to be false, the presumption that their being innocent would be an exception means there's a presumption that they have done something wrong and this now leads to a situation where the decks are stacked in favor of white accused especially when they're police officers and if you look at it the dead individual in this case george floyd is actually still on trial he's presumed even the victim is being presumed guilty when the issue here is the assessment of the guilt of the formerly accused, officer, former officer Chauvin.
3: Well, we want to continue this conversation. You're bringing up so many incredible points here. Um, and as we look at uh, the current state of affairs and what's happening again, uh, how, do this, how does the law change and will it ever change? We're gonna be continuing our conversation with Dr. Lewis Gordon next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. It is the third week of the Derek Chauvin trial for the murder of George Floyd. And we've been having this really powerful discussion with Dr. Lewis Gordon about this involving questions we should be asking ourselves as we um, are looking for racial justice in a court of law. Thanks again for being here for this.
0: Oh, thanks again for inviting me. I'm delighted to be here.
4: Yeah, I'm happy that we're centering this question, uh, this conversation about questions we should be asking ourselves. But I also think a very important part of this is what questions should we be asking and putting onto this administration? And I think the response that we heard from Joe Biden today about the most recent killing, it just feels like, you know, they're always going to do, put this due process first instead of kind of calling it what it is. What questions do you think we should really be having and holding our, this administration accountable and getting police reform really a, a tangible thing?
0: Well, ultimately, we need to have the not only the administration, but the nation really deal with truth and reality. And by that, what I mean is that if we think about when Biden would say this is not us, that is false. This is the, broadly speaking, foundation of this country. However, if we don't want this country to be a racist country with dual systems of justice that in effect come down to injustice it means we have to do the political work of its transformation Mm -hmm. and if we think back to what i was asked earlier would would this change the answer is it could only change through our actions so all those people who are protesting all those people who are organizing doing lobbying work thinking at every aspect of social life every one of them is doing their part for that change because as we know Whatever change we have today only emerged because of people putting themselves out there to make the world better.
3: And that, that is true. There's a lot of hope and faith in that. Uh, and yet everyone continues to be disappointed as the same thing continues to happen over and over again. And these trials continue to happen and these cops continue to be let go. Uh, so, I mean, in, in this case, it seems like the prosecutors have everything, you know, that that proves that Derek Chauvin is guilty. But yet the conversation continues. Will he be let go or will he be charged as guilty?
0: That's 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 absolutely correct. And that's because of not only the 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 problematic history, but it's also because right now we're going to have to develop more bold steps. Part of the problem is that we have blocked certain important questions to deal with police the the institution of the police in this country. For instance, there are police officers who are criminals. There are police officers who run everything from drug trafficking to let's face it, hits on people in the streets. And when we take this seriously, we have if we're going to make police officers subject to law, we're going to have to put on the table the full spectrum of questions through which to address the police. And it also means that we may need to develop a completely different system of how to deal with public safety. Because, well, let's face it, the police weren't always here, and it doesn't follow that one size fits all. In other words, it doesn't mean they must be here in the future. We need something much better if we're going to have a democratic society in which people live with decency and respect. And right now, the police officers function as a degrading force against the humanity of whole sectors, not only black people, but indigenous peoples in this country as well.
3: Dr. Lewis R. Gordon, thank you again for being with us. We appreciate it.
0: Oh, thank you. And uh, be well, continue being safe and healthy.
3: Oh, you too. You're so sweet. Thank Thank you. you.
0: Take care.
3: That was Dr. Gordon, professor and head of philosophy at UConn Stars. Among many other things, the list goes on and on. He has an amazing resume. Uh, but coming up on the show today, the talk came back today since the whole Sharon Osborne debacle, what they shared about what went down next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. Coming up on the show, more on toxic productivity and what to do about it. Plus, the debate continues over the ethics of OnlyFans, and we are here to explain it all.
4: Why are people so annoying? Uh, Let people have sex on camera. What if I wanted to have sex on camera?
3: And why do we only consider OnlyFans sex? I do want to have
4: sex on camera, Okay. (laughs) There you go. Who says I haven't? Haven't we all? Have we not all, like, had our private own little moments? Like, have you ever bought? Like, have you ever filmed
3: yourself doing anything? I've done um, video chat things with people that were not with me, but I've actually never like stopped and done it while I'm in the moment.
4: Oh girl, I'm in the You're moment.
3: No, I don't. I don't want to look at myself.
4: Ah, <laughs> uh-uh. see now, see now, that's some work that you got to work on. You probably you. Uh... You'll, I mean, honestly, if you do it, you watch it back, and you could see like what you like and what you don't like. No, I felt you look. it.
3: I felt what I like and I don't like. I don't need to look. No, but at how
4: it. you look also <laughs> could help you play into like, oh my god, I'm so hot. It, it oh, increases. I know.
3: I've seen myself in the mirror. I mean, for what you
4: just sounded like, you was. Like, I, don't wanna see I just want
3: to be present. I just enjoy one thing I can enjoy without sh- filming. <laughs> oh my lord. <laughs> All right. Only fans ethics coming up in 30 minutes. But first, let's get into somewhat shooting this hour. Uh, police say there are multiple shooting victims. Uh, this is happening in Knoxville, Tennessee, and it's reporting. Uh, it's reportedly happening at Austin East Magnet High School in East Tennessee city of Knoxville. Uh, and one police officer was shot today. Officials said the investigation is still active, but said the scene has been secured. So that's happening in Knoxville right now. As we speak. And uh, just finally, police officers in Virginia held an army officer at gunpoint, handcuffed him and doused him with pepper spray all during an illegal traffic stop. This happened over the weekend and um, the video came out. Officer Joe Gutierrez was fired following this December 5th incident, which was captured on video. So, of course, that's what's trending this hour. But let's move on to entertainment news because we need some lighter fare if this is later, I'm not sure. Oh
4: my gosh, she's talking so much. Uh, the talk <laughs> has returned back to regular scheduled programming amid the whole Sharon Osbourne scandal. And it's time for the Tea report Those pop culture stories trending right now. So, Shara Underwood, she kicked off today's episode, the first since the CBS show went on a hiatus nearly a month ago, um, by addressing viewers from backstage about what they can uh, expect in today's episode. Here's a little bit of what she said. It's Monday, April 12th, and it's time for an episode of the talk that will be unlike any other we've had before. We haven't been together at the studio since the week of March 10th. And as you may know, during our break, Sharon decided to leave the talk. We need to process the events of that day and what happened since, so we can get to the healing over the next hour. We will honestly discuss what occurred and explore some of our feelings. And we'll also show you how anyone can become more comfortable. So I have not watched the episode yet. I'm planning on doing that tonight. Um, but they have dived in completely, talking about the trauma, of the situation. Cheryl said she had PTSD from it. And they really do go there. And so I cannot wait to watch. Have you seen it? What, what were your thoughts at LGT Show? Let us know. Um, because, honey, I'll probably be talking about it a little bit t- more tomorrow once the clips and everything have oh, come yeah. out. Um, but that is your T-Report. I got more Coming up next hour. Coming up on the show, what is toxic productivity? What to do about it?
3: Are you one of those people who are feeding into this? We're here to help. Always. Next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. So some of you might identify yourselves as a workaholic, but a new term, toxic productivity, is bringing some new work behavior to the surface. And joining us to share more is Dr. Catherine Escare, a clinical psychologist and founder of the Teletherapist Network. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Excited to talk about toxic productivity. Yeah. So I guess let's just give people the definition, even though it's kind of um, obvious, but what does it entail?
2: Yeah, there's not an official uh, definition, but in my mind, toxic productivity is this unhealthy desire or motivation to be productive at all times. So it really limits our
3: ability to rest and feel fulfilled when we actually force ourselves to rest. I'm definitely one of those people sometimes. Yeah, I just fill in my time and it's, I wouldn't even say sometimes the thing is productive. It just feels like I'm doing something, right? Right, right. I'm living, quote unquote, versus giving myself the space just to do nothing, which helps.
2: Exactly. It's checking off that to-do list, even if the to-do list has a bunch of random nonsense on it that doesn't really amount to much. It's that it's that need to check it off, to cross it off. And um, yeah, it really cuts in our, into our ability to just recharge, um, enjoy life, because we're always striving for that next checkbox.
4: It feels like this feeling has always kind of been around, but how has the pandemic impacted increasing this feeling of, like, toxic productivity?
2: Yeah, I don't know about you guys, but I definitely felt it ramp up within me during um, the shutdown. And, you know, starting last March, we all had unprecedented amounts of free time given to us, right? Um, We couldn't go out. We couldn't do things. But we also had an unprecedented amount of stress being put on us. We had, some of us had no child care. Some of us were separated from family or partners or, or friends. And so with this um, large amount of free time and unprecedented amount of stress, we then kind of, a lot of us kicked it into high gear in terms of work productivity to feel a little bit more in control of our environment, right? So when everything around us is spinning out of control and we don't, we can't, We can't necessarily get a grip on it. It, It's like 2020 in a nutshell. Um, We kind of look to our immediate environment. So that to-do list, that task at work, Um, the projects at work Social media was
4: kind of telling us though to do that it was telling us to come out better than we were before and all these things and so it was adding all of that pressure and so what are some Uh of your tips in trying Uh to get out of this mindset because I I do feel like I feel that as well Mm -hmm. Like it's it's just something that is really difficult to get out of
2: Absolutely It it can be a cycle, right? Every time we check something off or we accomplish something we want to go do it again because it feels good Um, So the first and foremost, I do this with a lot of people I work with, take that to-do list and cut it into a third or a fourth. Only take about three to five of the most important things in your day and focus on those. So kind of have two separate to-do lists, really important and things that would be great to get done It would feel good to get done, but you don't need to get done. And take that don't need to get done list and kind of put it off to the side. Don't look at it as much. That's going to start teaching you that you can accomplish less and still feel like you checked it all off. Um, And don't even get me started on social media and the unrealistic standards. I think those messages came from a good place, but they were completely blown out of proportion. Um, so it's really important to take inventory of what you're doing
3: and, and cut it down. I highly doubt you have to get everything done that you think you do. Yeah. And I think that in this age we're in where it's all about bringing, building your personal brand, people have their own businesses. I think it's feeding into this even more because every point where you have space or time available, you think to yourself, or I think to myself, like, what could I be doing during this time? What am I not doing? And how is that contributing to me not reaching my goal, which is a messed up way, because that that could drive you crazy, let me tell you.
4: How much do Mm -hmm. you think the system that we kind of live in plays into that? Like, you know, being in a marginalized group, I mean, being a woman, Mm -hmm. being queer, being black, Mm -hmm. being a POC, how does that play into this feeling of trying to just be better and always keep up? Yeah.
2: I think you you hit the nail on the head. It's the keep up piece, right? When we feel less than in any one of our identities, marginalized or not, especially in the marginalized communities, when we feel less than, we're looking to fill that void, and fill that, that discrepancy, right? And when we look to our accomplishments to fill that goal, that 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 uh, that gap, we're not. Actually Addressing the issue here, right? It's kind of like not even a band-aid, it's kind of like masking over what's really happening and really not addressing that we are good enough no matter how much we get done or don't get done. Um, so I think that you're exactly right. It's it's that it's
3: that sense to keep up that I think I think social media also plays a part of it. How can you allow yourself to enjoy the gap? Oh,
2: that's like the ultimate question. I love that. Enjoy the gap. Well, it definitely depends on what you enjoy, but I would I would first and foremost start by just recognizing it might feel uncomfortable at first, right? You are gonna have to sit down, relax, watch a TV show, work on that guilt, do the inner work, um, but it's gonna feel uncomfortable at first. Well, how do we get better at anything? We practice. And so that's kind of a cool assignment. That how do, you, how do you enjoy the gap? Well, you practice having more gaps. You practice having more downtime. You try new hobbies.
3: You get engaged in different areas. Um, practice makes perfect in this sense. Definitely. Thank you uh, so much for being with us today for this. We appreciate it. No problem. Thanks for having me. That was Catherine es- Esker, who's a clinical psychologist and founder at the Teletherapist Network. Now, coming up, why experts are debating about the ethics of OnlyFans. We're going to be getting into that and more next. Let's go there. With Shira Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. Since its launch in 2016, OnlyFans has paid out over three billion dollars to its over one million creators. Wow, that's a lot of money, and it's bringing up a much-needed conversation around ethical porn. Lola Jean is with us right now, a sex educator and founder of Velvet Tip, a custom audio porn studio. Thanks for joining Ooh. us for this. Yeah, thanks for having me. I want to get a really into a cool name, by yeah, the way. I want to get into what an uh, custom audio porn studio is, but hold up one sec let's get into first ethical porn uh what is that how would you describe ethical porn so i feel like the word ethical has become
6: a buzzword kind of like the word organic so anybody can call their porn ethical that doesn't make it ethical there are certain practices when we think of what are they trying to say with ethical, and that can be anything from set conditions, people paying, um, being paid a fair wage, their treatment on and off set. Sometimes it even is due to the content that is displayed within the porn. But a company can't really be an ethical porn company because each thing that they produce is going to be different. So it's, it's really subjective, and it's something that isn't a title that you can necessarily Stay with you. Have to be very conscious of it for everything you do.
4: Yeah, and I feel like the lines are always blurred because a lot of like the stuff that you see on OnlyFans are they come from amateur like uh, sex workers or like just you know people who are just like oh I'm gonna turn on the camera and then it kind of streams like into to more of a professional view. So where's that line? Because it does feel like when you're talking about ethical, it feels like it, oh well this is becoming a really big professional thing, and then <laughs> you know like it just feels like you only talk about ethics when it turns in in terms of. Uh, professionalism and not when you're thinking about kind of like the amateur sex workers that you watch on like Twitter or something.
6: Yeah. So on OnlyFans, you are cutting out a lot of the middlemen. So because it's a lot of people with like, you know, a one person content studio, they might be the ones performing, filming. They're going to have a lot more control over that. Right. However, you don't know that. There, It still might be a team with people behind it. There still might be unethical treatment. Um, Just with the amount of money that's going on in OnlyFans, we're seeing a lot of people with really high end production teams. It's a lot of work on OnlyFans. So not everyone who's that one person content studio is going to have the same success but on OnlyFans OnlyFans still does take a pretty significant cut from sex workers so even this is almost it's more direct to the sex worker for giving them the money they're still not going to get 100% of that they're going to get 80 mm. maybe 50 depending on you know where their traffic and numbers are and similar to Patreon we might be starting to see the gentrification of these sex worker sites Um, There aren't many places for sex workers to go. So they're kind of subject to whatever sites will have them and what kind of cuts they take. Um, But OnlyFans might see that sexual content is more risk and they might not start allowing um, different sexual content that's that's on there. So that's the, the gentrification of these sites can put them at risk.
3: Yeah. And as more creators see it as an opportunity, the space becomes diluted, I would also assume.
6: Yeah, I mean, I, we saw what happened with Bella Thorne, who just she went on there and made the most amount of money in a day. And that directly affected everyone the next day, because since there were people asking for a refund, OnlyFans put a limit to the amount of money you could tip someone for a pay-per-view.
3: Okay, yeah, I I actually watched the Hulu documentary, which I would definitely recommend because I like that, too. Yeah. What did you think about that as more mainstream media is covering this? What do you think about the coverage of OnlyFans right now?
6: I mean, I think mid-pandemic, the coverage, it made it seem like, you know, get money quick kind of a scheme, which sex work is work and OnlyFans specifically is a lot of work and it's in the name, OnlyFans. You need to come with fans. It's not a very large discovery platform. But like anything with sex work, it's something where if it helps to give it to the public eye to destigmatize it, wonderful, but I feel like people were dipping their toes into sex work and then still stigmatizing that. So I did, I did watch the Hulu documentary and I feel like that gave a more honest approach to it. Yeah,
4: Yeah, so I mean, let's keep you on, because I I really want to know how to be more of a conscious porn consumer. Me too. Because I think it's important, especially when having the necessary conversations. So Lola, stick around. Don't go anywhere, okay?
3: Okay. We are back with Lola Jean, sex educator and founder of Velvet Tip, a custom audio porn studio, as we talk about the ethics of OnlyFans. So...
4: How are you supposed to be kind of like a conscious porn consumer? Like, how do you do that? Can you break that down for us?
6: Yeah, I I mean, I think it's like anything outside of porn. We should be critical and conscious consumers, just being aware of where our products come from and how they're made. And sometimes we choose to turn a blind eye because we know that it's maybe made in a factory where the conditions aren't so great. Um, So a way to do this, with porn and, and pornographers, I really like finding maybe certain performers um, or actors that I like to follow or watch and i'll I'll follow them i 'll follow them on social media I'll find different ways that I can view their content um, through whether it's different studios that they work with or things on their own. I could even contact them for a custom clip if I wanted. Um, And then also just finding different companies that both resonate with what kind of porn you like to watch, if that's queer, gay, if it's like really art house cinema, and looking for more smaller indie labels and and paying for your porn. So a couple I really like, scoreplay films is great for some high-end heterosexual porn, um aorta films is really really wonderful queer porn um there is four chambered hearts and that's out of london and that one is a bit more high-end art nouveau but you can really look these things up and find these smaller companies for it's not that much money that you're paying for it but the first step to being an ethical consumer is
3: getting off the free tube sites Oh, okay. Oh, good to know.
4: Can't you just like Cash App your favorite performers? Like, is that more uh, on of a,
3: Instagram? Don't you find them somewhere? Or like a
4: Vim? Like, I feel like if you want to kind of cut out the middleman, even if it's like a OnlyFans, is there ways that you can do that where you know they're getting 100% of the profit? Is that something that is more en- enticing for content creators where they're just like, at least I know I'm getting all the money?
6: yeah and to do that you might not be able to ask them directly because sex workers also get kicked off of cash app and venmo and all these different things but usually if you do enough digging on their social media or website they will have links those different links to getting them money more directly so whether that is through a different source like Nightflirt or sex panther or maybe they have a wish list and you can buy them like a gift from there directly if you search you will find it they will give you enough clues wow
3: and just as we say goodbye uh tell us more about just velvet tip and what does audio porn mean
6: yeah so velvet tip comes from an old english um slang of cunnilingus uh because it's supposed to mimic the velvety texture of the, the vulva and the tongue yes and this is something i created just because All of the hetero audio porn that was out there, it just didn't really appeal to me. And I wanted to make something that was very gender neutral and also ways where you could explore BDSM. And what better way than a custom content where you can have a consultation, someone can say your name, they can take your boundaries into account, they can make your whole experience without you ever having to leave your home.
4: And do you think this, like, obviously, and this is the, for sure the last question, because I always want to know, like, when we're seeing and having these necessary conversations about sex work and just sexual education and OnlyFans, do you think that's really helping us move forward? Do you think that's eliminating the stigma that is, like, constant still there? It feels like, you know, do you feel like we're actually progressing?
6: I do. Absolutely. I think the important thing is that while we should be talking about sex work more than ever, and we really currently are, is also making sure that there is a sex worker there. We shouldn't necessarily be speaking on their behalf. And there are so many different types of sex workers. It doesn't mean it's full service or stripping or pro doming or any of that. Um, But yeah, the more that we talk about it and bring it to the forefront, the better, because not everybody knows a sex worker.
3: That is true. Well, thank you for your work and what you're doing and being here. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. That was Lola Jean's sex educator. And check out her company, Velvet Tip, as well. Now, coming up, why gas prices keep rising as Southern California reopens. That and more next on What's Turning This Hour. Let's Go There with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. Welcome back to Let's Go There. We're here for you live on Channel Q, 2 to 6 p.m. Pacific, 5 to 9 p.m. Eastern. Coming up this hour, at what age are people the happiest? And are you in that age group right now?
4: Okay, okay. so let's take a guess. What age do you think?
3: I know the answer,
4: so I can't guess. Like, oh. you guess. Wow. Uh, I'm going to say, I'm going to say people are probably their happiest.
3: Mm, Should I just eat?
4: Never? I don't like snack know. Snack, right? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe they're their happiest never. when they're 50. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like 50s are a turning point where you just don't care anymore. Like, you care, but you just don't care about things that you thought, like, were the so important, but mm-hmm. they're really not important.
3: Or when you're yeah, when you're dying, you're like... What? No,
4: the people aren't dying in their 50s.
3: No, I'm just saying, when you're, like, at the end, you're just like, oh, yeah, there's no, I shouldn't be worrying about anything right now. Just being in the present.
4: At least I was trying to keep people alive. We'll
3: have some answers for you in 15 minutes. Plus, I'm so excited to have Semler, the first openly queer artist, hit number one on the iTunes Christian Music Charts with EP Preacher's Kid, joining us also this hour and 30 minutes. She actually was on our show last year, uh, but Semler is her artist name, and so uh, now she's moving into music. Super excited to hear about her journey to become uh, the top Christian music artist. How about that? And, and she's, oh, yeah, she's openly queer. Yeah. In the LGBTQ plus community, as I mentioned. Love it. Right now, let's get into some What's training This Hour. Dr. Fauci is continuing to speak out about eating and drinking indoors as COVID cases rise in certain states. Here's what he had to share on MSNBC
0: okay for the simple reason that the level of infection the dynamics of infection in the community are still really disturbingly high like just yesterday there were close to 80,000 new infections and we've been hanging around 60, 70, 75,000 so if you're not vaccinated please get vaccinated as soon as vaccine becomes available to you and if you are vaccinated Please remember that you still have to be careful and not get involved in crowded situations, particularly indoors where people are not wearing
3: masks. I assumed he was about. To say. <laughs> At this point, I've heard the quote before. Yes. I've heard him speak enough times. Uh, but listen, I'm not the type of person that would want to be inside anyway. I mean, it's so nice outside. So enjoy the outdoors all you can, including if you live in those uh, places that are usually cold. I feel bad for my family in Montreal again. Finally, it's opening up. Uh, They're still under lockdown. 8 p.m. curfew. Can you imagine? So let's just do what we're doing. We're doing it right here. There's places around the world where it's really rough. So let's just respect the COVID right now so it dissipates, Okay. Uh, and finally, gas prices are remaining flat across the country as demand increases and actually increasing here in SoCal, according to AAA. <laughs> Listen to this. The national average price is $2.86 a gallon. It's down from one set from last week, but one year ago, it's a big leap because the average one year ago was $1.80 a gallon.
4: Who's paying two cents? Sub-
3: I mean, this I is national average. Here, something. it's like up to six.
4: Who, who's paying $6? I saw that
3: the other week here in California. Where
4: at? What area were you in? Because, girl, I'm still paying like 350 but that's even a stretch for me.
3: $6? Regular gas at a downtown LA station, you're $6 per gallon. Six days ago.
4: They're going to be out of business soon because no one's going there. Yeah. No Unless one's you have no
3: choice, that. unfortunately. What
4: you're do you out mean? of gas. What are you gonna do? Then they're only gonna feel like one, like one gallon up. That's true.
3: Um, and the reason why it's increasing um, vaccinations, warmer weather, travel, of course, and demand for gas is increasing. But because of the jump in demand, gasoline supplies tightened and have reached their lowest level of the year too, according to AAA. Meanwhile, uh, th- that's why maybe you got to do some electric. So you don't need to rely on the gas. There are our options. We're evolving to be that type of place. Um, I was also going to talk about, just as we wrap up this, because we're talking about travel and cars. Trending right now on Twitter, WeRide, the Chinese autonomous vehicle startup, recently raised $310 million. They've received a permit to test driverless vehicles on public roads in San Jose, California. So you might see a driverless uh, car.
4: Isn't that what a Tesla is?
3: Uh, but there's others that have gotten this permit. Usually they do the driverless cars, they test them with a person behind the wheel. Not these cars. They're going all in. And that was what's trending this hour. What's happening in entertainment news, Ryan? <laughs> By the way, does that scare you? What? Driverless cars. Like if you just saw a, like a car being tested
4: no, on your road. Not really. I'm, I'm, I feel like I adapt really well to certain things. And I can adapt to that. Like, if anything supernatural was to ever happen to me, I would feel like I would adapt really quickly to it. I wouldn't be scared. All right. Because I like that type of stuff.
3: I mean, we can't trust uh, tech probably more than humans at this it's point. It's not your turn anymore.
4: Let's move on to the <laughs> team report
3: <laughs>
4: <laughs> Okay, so let's take a trip back to 2004. New details are coming out about the Justin Timberlake-Janet Jackson Super Bowl wardrobe malfunction. And it's time for the T-Report. Those pop culture stories trending right now. So the stylist who prepped Janet Jackson's look for her infamous 2004 Super Bowl appearance with Justin Timberlake is speaking out. Um, basically, he is saying that uh, Timberlake pushed for the wardrobe malfunction in an attempt to outdo Britney Spears, Madonna, and Christina Aguilera, who had just wowed uh, the whole entire world much earlier by that whole... You remember that, that kiss, that threesome kiss that they did at the MTV uh, Video oh, Music Awards? I remember Awards? that, yep. Well, mm-hmm. apparently... Justin Timberlake was like, I need to do something to wow the world as well. Like, all the attention's on them. I need to do something. The stylist Wayne Scott Lucas told Page Six that Timberlake insisted on doing something bigger than their performance. He wanted a reveal. Um, He continued on saying that the original concept was for Jackson to be in a pearl G-string inspired by one that Kim Cattrall had worn in the episode of Sex in the City. He said Janet was going to be in a, a dress and Justin was going to step on the back of her dress to reveal her butt in a pearl G-string, he told us, um, but the outfit changed a couple days before you saw the unfortunate line of events that happened.
3: Why was it up to her to reveal something? If he wanted to reveal something, he could have revealed his booty or other I don't other think things. she wanted
4: to reveal anything. Well, obviously,
3: that was his, but it's his idea. If you have an idea it's for something, gross. you do it.
4: It's actually really gross, though. He was able to, like, he was willing to sacrifice Janet Jackson's, like, career for some jealousy that he had. Like, are you killing Like, are you kidding me?
3: But it's also using someone's body for like a whole show and tell, right? It's like you know, even if you think me myself, I'm like, yeah, I want to reveal something. Why would I put it on someone else? That's like
4: you're basically what would he using have to reveal? No, and who <laughs> would want joke. to see it? Well,
3: yeah, I mean, maybe
4: I don't a know. You second thought it. You want to see it. No, I was just oh saying, get God, creative. Oh, my God, you want to see it. You want
3: to reveal something? Get creative.
4: Shira wants to see just Justin t- Timberlake's reveal. <laughs> anyway, that's your T Report. Let us know what your thoughts are at LGT Show. Y'all know I love it when you keep the conversation going. DM us. We like to read them here live on the air as well. And we are channelq.com is the website. I am done spilling.
3: Q, I'm bringing sexy back. <laughs>
4: I'm not queuing anything because he's an A. Beep, 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 beep. I don't like him anymore.
3: Moving on.
4: He's awful. Uh, yeah. He's the free a- Britney doc proves that.
3: That is true. Uh, all right. So let's move on to what everyone wants to know. At what age are people the happiest?
4: I'm going to spoil it right now. No. I'm going to spoil it. <laughs> Before you do. <laughs>
3: that's coming yeah. up next. Research has revealed what age people are the happiest. And joining us right now is Dr. Claire Mehta, who's an associate professor of psychology at Emmanuel College. Thanks for being here for this. I don't want to do the big reveal because I'm going to leave it to you, Dr. (laughs) Mehta.
5: All right. Excellent. Well, this research uh, was actually brought to me. Somebody had told me that a survey was recently done saying that people were the happiest at Are you ready for it? Age thirty-six. Oh, and
0: yes, yes. yes. So, if you're
5: not thirty-six yet, you've got something to look
4: forward to. I said fifty, which is closer to Shira's age. I'm
3: thirty-seven, which is uh, that means. Does that mean it's uh, behind me? I guess I had my best year last year. (laughs) You're never
4: experiencing happiness again. Uh, Why thirty?
3: Why thirty-six?
5: So, the research that I've been doing, so I've actually been interviewing people from 30 to about 45. We're calling this period of the lifespan established adulthood. And so, um, you know, this, this age came from just a little quick survey that actually a pharmaceutical company had done. Um, but when I look at my own research, I can actually see a really clear explanation for this. It seems as though people, when they're in their 30s and early 40s, so it's not all over at 37, just to let you know, still got some good times ahead of you, um, people are just a lot more confident with who they are. So they tend to be in the job that maybe they've been working for for a lot of their life. They're finally there. Um, They uh, oftentimes feel as though they're still physically doing well. So all of those aches and pains of older adulthood haven't quite started yet. You're still able to do the things that you want to do. You may have more resources than you've had before. So you're financially a bit more stable. So you're not worrying about money all the time. And then the thing that I think is most important and most interesting, which I was actually really surprised by, is even people who are super stressed in their late 30s and early 40s because they have young kids at home. They're trying to balance that with work. They just feel happy because they finally know who they are. So they're more self-confident they have more self-understanding and i think this is the best thing they finally stop caring what other people think of them
4: how do we find that earlier though right like why can't i be which i am in my 20s why can't i not have figured that out when but like before i was 27 like why how do we make that happen a lot earlier so we're not you? going through so much because it does feel like your your 20s is that year those years where you're learning so much about yourself and then you go into your 30s where you still kind of feel a little bit more comfortable or you're still trying to figure it out but wh- how can we achieve that a lot earlier that feeling of happiness why do we have to go through the the mud just to get there
5: This is such a good question. I don't know, as a developmental psychologist, I don't know if it's possible to get there sooner. Mm -hmm. So much of it is tied to our brain development. And so our frontal lobes are still developing in our 20s and that has to do with judgment and decision-making and we spend a lot of time in our teens and in our 20s really just worried about what other people think of us and it just seems to be developmentally kind of normative so it would be great if we could get rid of that we actually there's a, a term for it in psychology we call it the imaginary audience we think that everyone is looking at us all the time and judging us and it takes until you're in your mid-30s to realize that that's probably not true because everyone's so caught up with their own things right that they're not really uh, worrying about what you look like whether you plucked your eyebrows today things like that so I'm not sure that we can get there sooner maybe we can keep trying to tell people in their 20s not to worry so much and that you know no one's paying attention nobody really cares what's going on with you just do what you need to do yourself be confident in your own skin but I think it's part of the journey and you kind of have to go through it to be able to be comfortable and uh, feeling more self-confident when you get to your 30s all
3: right so we want to keep you on because i do want to know if once you reach this happy age does that change your perspective on like what you want in your life and where you're going to be headed because i feel like in the knowledge that i i'm happy in this way it's kind of shifted how i look at the things that i used to love Um, And I think it can create a big conflict and a bit of an um, existential crisis. You don't need to be uh, in the mid-age to have an existential crisis. It could happen, uh, you know, just, I guess, at 36 or after that. But let's get into what that all means coming up next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. We are back with Dr. Claire Mehta, associate professor of psychology at Emanuel College. We're talking about the age that people are the happiest, and uh, she revealed it's thirty-six.
4: Yeah, and I have a follow-up because you were you were really kind of breaking down the whole developmental psychology of it all of like us not being able to experience true happiness before we kind of reach this age. But I also wonder what if you know our parenting skills kind of change? Like, what if we were teaching younger people to kind of you know love themselves and respect themselves, or do all the necessary things that could achieve mm. that happiness earlier. Is it—is that a part could that simply change things?
5: I love that idea and I think that it's good to always be teaching this to younger people to love themselves and self-acceptance uh and i would like to say that that would change things i'm very optimistic about that if we can do it consistently in schools if we can do it with parents and if we can do it with the peer group too and i think one of the issues is getting all of those things to be consistently supportive Mm -hmm. around someone um so yes in a fantasy world absolutely why couldn't we get there sooner if we're Um, able to kind of support that in all of these different ways and kind of every context. But I think because we're not able to support it in all of these contexts, it's very hard to get there sooner. Mm.
3: Uh, So, of course, you said 36, the happiest age folks will be. What happens on the other side of 36? And does that lead people sometimes to a bit of an existential crisis where things that made them happy or they thought made them happy, it changes? And like, what have you seen happen to people after that age?
5: So I love that you're asking this question because this was one of the things that actually drew me to studying this age period was a little existential crisis I had where I looked at my bookcase one day and realized that I wasn't going to live long enough to read all of the books that I owned, which was slightly depressing. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, right. This happens at this, I think at this point of the lifespan. So for me, it actually happened around 37 that I started thinking this way. And so I think that what happens is, yes, you're feeling happy, you're feeling kind of settled where you are, but you do also have this moment where instead of looking backwards at time, which is how we spend most of our life, right? You're like 10 and then you're 15 and then you're 20 and you're counting how many years have passed. I think we start to look forward and see how many years
3: we have left. <gasps> yeah. and That's awful. Right? This is, yeah. <laughs> this no, is I mean, I'm nodding right? because this is one of the conversations I have with my boyfriend and I come here. Like and you're I, losing time is what yeah, you feel? Like that you only have, like we only might have 40 more years together and
4: like, So that's not a lot. Well, this doesn't seem very exciting. it's real. Moving forward. So how the hell am I supposed (laughs) to be excited about moving forward in my life if I know I'm going to be looking at everything from a very complicated perspective? sometimes?
5: (laughs) (laughs) But I think this is exciting because you, like, bear with me. I'm going to put this positive spin on it. Because when you start to see that time, I think in our 20s, time feels limitless and endless. And when we start to realize that that's not actually true, Then we can start making some changes in our life that maybe we should have made sooner. So, for me, I broke up with someone I had been with for four years. It wasn't going anywhere. And I was like, I don't have much more time left. And now Mm. I've, you know, met someone who's absolutely wonderful. It's like the best thing I could have done. Mm. I am hearing from people who are in jobs that they like, they kind of only think they're okay. And then they realize, like, oh, I always wanted to be a lawyer and now I'm. You know, 38, if I'm ever going to do it, now is my chance to do this. So I think it pokes at us a little bit and makes us move in directions that could actually make us happier.
4: Wow. All
3: right. Um, what about and, and this was talked about in terms of the polling and the, and the types of people you polled. Does this hit every type of person? Because there's obviously um, those dealing with systemic issues as well and what happiness means to them.
5: Yeah, so I think that's a really, really good question. Like we know in the United States, people of color, for example, are disproportionately um, unemployed, underemployed. They're in precarious, low paying jobs. And so this might mean that during established adulthood, so 30 to 45, while um, people who are white in the U.S. are enjoying relative stability and advancement in their careers, people of color may still have instability and stagnation. And one of the uh, things that we found in our research, too, which I think was interesting, uh, because I am... Uh, doing this, you know, as a person, I'm actually 41 years old, so I'm still an established adult, but I'm, you know, well past my, my the best year of my life. Um, but a lot of the people who I know, just in my friendship group are planning, uh, whether or not they're having children. And when we were interviewing people, one of my students was actually conducting some interviews, and she came back to me and she said, you know, when we're interviewing people who are working class, oftentimes, they're not planning to have Um, children. It just happens. And so we've had to be very careful in our research about how we structure the questions based on our own identities and the backgrounds that we're coming from, because everybody has a different experience. So I don't think this applies to everyone. I think, you you know, I'm I'm always telling people all the time we have this huge problem with systemic racism in this country. And I think that that impacts people's experiences. Um, I also i am a feminist psychologist, so I spent a lot of time studying gender as well. And women's experiences are also very uh, different for males' experiences. So, one of the things I talk about is the career and care crunch. And for a lot of uh, women who have children. They are in heterosexual relationships, especially that right. predominantly taking care of the children. And then you hear these heterosexual men who are like, oh, I love having kids. It's the best thing that ever happened to mm, me. Yep. And their partners are talking about how hard it is and how there are days when they wish that they didn't have children. So, you know, there are definitely differences depending well, on who you're talking to.
3: Dr. Claire Mehta, this has been fabulous. Thanks again for your work and for being here today. We appreciate it. No, thanks for having me. Uh, Coming up on the show, an openly queer Christian artist who just hit number one Christian album on iTunes. Semler joins us next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. Semler uh, recently became the first openly queer artist to hit number one on the iTunes Christian music, music charts with the EP Preacher's Kid. Here's a little clip of that.
7: My best friend found God, so we lost touch. I guess save Savior beats a friend who thinks you're good enough. I hope she finds love and peace. And if her kid comes out, I hope that she calls me.
3: And we've got Semler joining us now on Let's Go There. Thanks for being here and congratulations. Thank
7: you so much for having me. Thank you.
3: And, and what an interesting leap for you. I mean, I've known you in so many places, the entertainment industry, but now uh, you are yeah. similar and then launching this song. What inspired you to move into the Christian music space?
5: Right.
7: So it was because I was doing this docu-series um, called State of Grace, and I actually think I came through Channel Q mm-hmm. when that was yeah, going sure on in the I last do. episode that we um, taped right before quarantine was about exclusion within the Christian music industry. And I was left with this question of like, how, how is no one sort of challenging these gatekeepers? And then, you know, how it was, we were all at home alone with our thoughts. And I've been writing music my whole life. And I just wrote this EP and recorded it on a USB mic and just hope to find points of connection. Other people that might want to, see themselves um, that maybe had a similar experience growing up in a faith that ultimately would go on to reject them. And and then, and then this all happened. It was very, very strange roundabout way of things.
4: Well, I mean, You did something that I don't think a lot of queer people or even people in general would have thought you could have accomplished. I mean, sitting at number one on the Christian music charge is something that I feel like is the ultimate protest. What was that response like? Were you nervous by, you know, the responsibility of one doing what you're doing, you know, confronting these gatekeepers, but then also the hate that comes with being online and being queer and then especially in this space?
7: I was so shocked that we even cracked top 40. So I initially wasn't thinking that there would be much of a response. You know, I thought for people who'd been listening to me and maybe following my work for a while that they would enjoy it, but I didn't expect it to sort of get to the level that it reached. So yeah, when it went number one, there was a direct correlation to people asking me, asking me is kind of a generous way of putting it, but just people asking me to repent um, and like sending me block texts of Bible verses. And that certainly has come my way. But it's been definitely overshadowed by the the support, I think, and the people that are like, "I, I feel like I'm hearing my story and what you're talking about and finding, again, this community of people that we were told we would never find if we came out and lived As ourselves, and yet the opposite has been true.
3: Yeah, it's pretty remarkable what you're doing. So now that you have Preacher's Kid out, you've had over a half a million streams within weeks of its release. What's next for you? I mean, are you just diving right in to this whole space? Yeah,
7: I was just in the studio yesterday. I got home at 3 a.m. I finished up this song. It's my first time in a studio with, like, taking myself this seriously as a songwriter. And we finished up a song that I think. Hopefully it could be like a big anthem for a lot of people that, you know, have been going through something similar to this. So I'm really excited about that. And I, I'm just, I'm writing every day. This is really just, I feel more motivated, focused and inspired than ever before. And honestly, I'm going for that CCM Grammy. Like, I really want that. I really want that representation. And I want to break down that barrier.
3: (sighs)
4: Uh, well, I just got chills. I, I mean, think it's pretty cool. You're just always, you've always been super inspirational. You know, I've always identified with you in the in the sense of being not a, pre, a PK, but like just being heavily in yeah. the religious world. And I'm, I'm very, very proud of you. Knock down those doors and don't apologize for a damn thing, honey.
7: Oh, thank you, my friend. That means a lot to hear. I know that it's, sort of uncharted territory and I think that there is like a great sense of community and also heartbreak in this shared religious trauma but I'm excited that like when Lil Nas X released Call Me By Your Name that more and more people are talking about this you know that we're we're not silent anymore.
3: Uh, Do you think you're gonna have a dance song? You need some sort of dance music. (laughs) I don't know I don't know if anyone's looking
7: for a similar dance track but I can tell you that (laughs) I am going to release, I am releasing something that we can, like, rage to at a dive bar. I can help you with that.
3: Okay, I feel it, I feel it. Well, we appreciate it, and thanks again, and hope to have you back. Thank you so much. Uh, That was Semler. Check out her latest EP, Preacher's Kid, out now. Coming up on the show, Lin-Manuel Miranda's optimistic message as he looks towards Broadway's reopening in New York City. That's next on What's Trending This Hour. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan channel Q. Welcome back to the show and coming up at what age are people the happiest?
4: That's not coming up. We already talked you about that. You can listen to that on our podcast. <laughs> Actually, but that's so funny that you brought that up because I was literally <laughs> going to say, I am still so depressed from that conversation. Like I don't, she tried to really put a positive spin on the entire thing. Um, But I feel so depressed over it. Because
3: life, you know, you you need to know what's on the other side to enjoy what you have right now.
4: No, but it wasn't even about enjoying life for sure, for sure. It was more so like there is no happiness. Because (laughs) even if you reach that age, You're still wanting more. You're thinking, oh, my God, I'm losing out on so much. So I just don't I don't know what I was supposed to take away from it, to be quite honest. I'm still very uh, reeling in from that traumatizing conversation.
3: All right. Well, you can uh, send the receipt to our program director, your therapy receipt. Uh (laughs) Not me. Do not send that to me. Uh, but yes, it's a it's a great conversation we had. So if you missed it, check it out on our podcast. I thought what you were gonna age? Say, oh well, are people the happiest. Uh, no, I feel for you, Ryan. I do. Uh, but coming up, you should
4: feel for yourself too. You be going through stuff.
3: I, I feel for myself and feel myself every single day.
4: That's gross, here. Coming
3: up on the show, <laughs> uh, we're going to be talking more uh, in fifteen minutes about the Jarek Chauvin trial, and more importantly. Um, Questions, America. All of us need to ask ourselves about seeking racial justice in a court of law. We have a really uh, amazing professor joining us for that conversation coming up. But first, let's get into some what's trending this hour. Lin Manuel Miranda was at the opening of a new vaccination site for Broadway workers and shared his excitement about the potential reopening.
4: Oh, Oh, it's there on the. the, Oh, it's not.
3: And by the way, it's nice to see him because. You know, we were seeing a lot of him at the beginning of the pandemic with Hamilton and everything. He was everywhere on every talk show. So it means that some good news is ahead. Broadway is hopefully We want to gather
1: again and we want to tell stories in the dark. We cannot do that if we don't feel safe and if you don't feel safe. So the first step in that process is getting our vaccination shots um, and the next steps will follow. But the first step starts today with this clinic. I'm really grateful to the mayor's office. I'm really grateful to these performers for making me cry again um, and laugh again. I cannot wait to feel in a room with you guys again. We wanna gather again.
3: Love him as usual, great stuff Um, and again, a lot of the uh, entertainment industry live performances really exciting for that to come back because they've been out of work for a very long time. Uh, but also on what's turning this hour, the family of Nigel Shelby, a 14 year old Huntsville, Alabama teenager has launched a lawsuit against Huntsville city schools for civil rights violations and wrongful death. A Shelby, a gay youth took his own life in 2019 following a lot of bullying at school over his sexual orientation uh, Huntsville City Schools released a statement of their own last month. They were apparently ant- anticipating the lawsuit. The district reiterated that it does not support bullying and has resources available for LGBTQ students to receive counseling as well. Obviously, they did not do enough here to intervene. And of course, a reminder, if you or someone you know is going through... Suicidal thoughts or bullying, The trevorproject.org Please check it out, including for all those y- young people out there in the LGBTQ plus community. And that was what's trending this hour. What's happening in entertainment news, Ryan?
4: Well, what's happening is we're about to talk about that hideous dress that Kid Cuddy is getting praised for for wearing on, um, on SNL. Um, it's time for the T Report. Is it those... Kid Cudi No, or it's Kid, Kid Cuddy. Cuddy. Okay. I don't, I'm, I'm sorry, you don't have to question my. I was asking. Who says Cudi <laughs> I think I've done it in the past. Yeah, that's very white girl sheer of her. <laughs> it's time for the tea report. Those pop culture stories trending right now. So he wore a um, spaghetti strap floral dress for his performance of Sad People. It's a song of his. Um, he also wore a rumpled green cardigan with a T-shirt featuring a photo of the late SNL cast member Chris Farley. Mm. Now, it appeared to be a huge, like a homage to Kurt Cobain, the dress, Um, who notably he also wore a cardigan during uh, Nirvana's MTV plug concert in 1993 and a floral dress on a cover of the um, Brit magazine The Face that same year of course we know that Kurt Cobain died by suicide at the age of 27 um, and Farley died of a drug overdose in 1997 at the age of 33 Um, here's the thing I'm super excited that people are praising him for wearing this dress but it was ugly and it was ill-fitting, and if he's going to be this straight man trying to break the binary codes, at least look nice. You look stupid. I
3: mean, is it because and I need to look at the Kurt Cobain one? Maybe that was exactly the same dress. So that's why. So, if anything, no, it wasn't the Kurt same. Cobain, I don't think it was who, the same
4: exact dress. Yeah,
3: he goes in a floral dress. Yeah, in a floral. I just read that,
4: Shira. You're reading the same link of the look information looking, that I'm just I came That's why I don't like to put the links in because Wait. she would be like going in and be. Wait, telling,
3: I want to look at the Kirk Cobain version because I think that's why uh, that happened, which I can't seem to find. No,
4: exactly. Not. So you don't have to worry about it because the dress is ugly. It didn't look good on him. Crisco
3: being more maybe more of like a t-shirt like a button down one that yeah anyway
4: thank you for that fashion police assessment I did not like it at all and i i you know i think it i think one thing that's really frustrating as we wrap this up super quickly is like oftentimes we see the hairy styles we see the uh-huh. bad bunnies we see the kid cuddies now wearing dresses and, and everyone is being like oh they're doing something so special look at them femininity but then there's actual queer folks out there doing it and we don't get that same like love and response they don't get that same support and so for me if you're gonna have the audacity to do it which super excited love Kid Cuddy happy you were able to do it Look good. Don't look a fool. So, it look like he could barely breathe. Well, Juan, <laughs> it is hard
3: to be in dresses good. You all, he should know this that as a woman,
4: or whatever. That's, that's not the point. Yeah. But right. I appreciate it.
3: And it's his honest stylist also for putting him in that. But yes, uh, also. I agree. Do you think it's too
4: much? Do you think it's trying too hard for these guys who typically wouldn't wear these types of outfits? No, I'm not going to I'm not gonna trash them for doing it because I do think it's incredible because we haven't seen that. And I, anytime somebody wants to kind of be somewhat of an ally, shout out to it, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's great. And I think he's probably also grown in his own way for him to be able to feel comfortable enough to do that. And so that's beautiful. My thing is, don't choose an ugly dress. That's all I'm saying. At least Harry Styles looks good. Just don't choose an ugly dress. Let me know what your thoughts were about SNL. Um, also, um, honorable mention, shout out to Macaulay Culkin and Brenda Song. They have revealed that they're dating and now having a baby. So, whatever. They had a turbo relationship.
3: You're familiar pandemic. with that. We've talked about that on the show.
4: <laughs> That's your team report, y'all.
3: We're wrapping up the show as we always do with our Yaz Queen of the Day.
4: Yes, Queen.
3: First, a shout-out to this gifted 12-year-old who is making waves as a soon-to-be college student with plans to work as a NASA engineer. Wow. I know. Intense. Elena Wicker lives in Texas. She's going to be virtually attending Arizona State University this May. She's 12th um, after she graduates high school. There, she intends to double major in astronomical and planetary science and chemistry to further her dream of working at NASA as an engineer. We love that. We know how these fields could be dominated by men and also a woman of color. This is just like very important to have that representation. Uh, And she's incredible in doing that at such a young age.
4: Couldn't have said it better myself.
3: And also, another Yaz Queen today. Photographer Brandon Hicks shared photos from his recent work with Band-Aid to Twitter and his Instagram. The photos showed a dark-skinned black woman wearing dark brown, flesh-colored bandages. Well, those photos went viral. He said, recent work for Band-Aid. So that tweet has been liked almost 30,000 times. And a lot of people are just sharing comments of excitement. Uh, One person said, the way I would purposely hurt myself just to have this. Okay? Uh, don't hurt yourself, but this is great and much needed. So Band-Aid... like a
4: suicidal thing. <laughs> but like, yes. you know, like, oh yes, my God, I, I can't wait to wear a Band-Aid.
3: Yes. Um, well, they announced it's <laughs> part of it's part of Band-Aid's R-Tone line of products. They said, R-Tone embraces the beauty of brown skin with bandages designed to better blend with a range of skin tones made with our most comfortable fabric. Uh, so that is happening. Band-Aid doing good stuff. And they get our Yas Queen of the Day as well. Yeah. Yes, Queen. And that does it for our show today. But we are back tomorrow weekdays here for you on Channel Q Live, 2 to 6 p.m. Pacific, 5 to 9 p.m. Eastern. On tomorrow's show, we're going to be talking about this conservative organization who tried to mock Pete Buttigieg for denouncing racism and why it didn't work. Uh, And some stress is actually good for you.
4: Prove it. I don't believe
3: it. All right. Yeah, we're going to be sharing how to better deal with it and also good stress versus bad stress
4: there's no such thing
3: we're gonna be talking about that on tomorrow's show if you miss any of our shows or interviews we post everything as a podcast just go to the odyssey app and search let's go there or wherever podcasts are available of course we are sending you love and light and honey remember to slay and stick around for love line with dr chris where he's covering setting mental health boundaries so needed that's next.